The Education Channel supports individual educational goals and encourages creativity for all. Visit uctv.tv slash education. Greetings and welcome to this special event being presented by the Golden School of Public Policy. I'm Dan Mogula from UC Berkeley's Office of Communications and Public Affairs. Today, we're going to be talking with the distinguished authors of an important and profoundly relevant new book, and that's Racial Resentment in the Political Mind. In this deeply researched and well-argued work, Professors David Wilson and Darren Davis challenge the commonly held notion that racial prejudice is the primary driver of the racial resentment that influences political perspectives, as well as attitudes towards policies designed to help racial minorities. Let me quickly introduce them. David Wilson is the Dean of the Goldman School and was formerly the Senior Associate Dean for the Social Sciences in the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Delaware and was a full professor in the Department of Political Science and International Relations with a joint appointment in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences, a really interesting combination. His research examines how individuals formulate their political preferences about race, race and justice, and how social cognition shapes broader survey response behaviors. David, welcome. Darren Davis is the Snyder Family Mission Endowed Professor in Political Science at the University of Notre Dame. Professor Davis has served in numerous roles at Notre Dame, including Associate Vice President for Research. He is the author of numerous articles and books, including Negative Liberty, Political Opinion and the Terrorist Attacks on America, and Perseverance in the Parish, Religious Attitudes from a Black Catholic Perspective. Darren and David, let's start out. I just gave a very bare bones description. David, let's start with you. Unpack a little bit more so we can level set for everybody joining the conversation today. What the book is about, what its central thesis is, and why this is so important right now. Thank you, Dan. Um, Darren and I are extremely happy to be here to talk about the book and, um, and get us focus on a new way of thinking about racial attitudes. The book is about how individuals think about race and behave politically. For the longest time, we focused on only two kinds of racial attitudes, racism and prejudice. And what Darren and I sought to do was dig beneath that surface to see essentially what happens when you remove all of the racism and prejudice then what matters, right? So we'll, we are essentially taking people at the word, their word when they say they're not a racist and seeing if it really does matter or not. What we found is that the values we hold tied to deservingness and justice dictate how we think about one, uh, how one should be helped in politics and public policy. So as we deal with issues around affirmative action and public support systems, people do an automatic appraisal of whether or not those kinds of policy outcomes are deserved or not. And so even if one is not racist, they can still uh, exacerbate racial injustice and racial inequality by focusing on their values rather than the actual problem and any solutions that might be at bay to try and solve them. Aaron, do you want to add to that description of sort of the book's essence? Um, so uh, thanks again, Dan. Um, I wish I was there in Berkeley. You know, it's about 21 degrees here in South Bend. <laughs> um, um, I would just like to uh, compliment what David said. 
Um, and I'm going to use different different words. Um, you know, politics has been uh, driven by racial prejudice. And um, I think one of the most important contributions of the book is that um, we dig beneath the surface to implicate a broader swath of American citizens who may not be racial, racially prejudiced, but nonetheless, they do and say things that racists do. They just may not uh, possess the uh, antipathy or the hatred toward African-Americans. Um, I don't believe that everyone is, is racist or racially prejudiced, but that is the way in which we commonly view politics. We most often view politics through a racially prejudiced lens. What David and I do is say, okay, well, let's set that aside. That's, that exists. But there are other motivations um, underlying why people do and say the things they do. And racial prejudice is just one motivation. We argue that racial resentment implicates a broader swath of American citizens. When you say implicates, what do you mean by that? Implicate, uh, become responsible. Um, People need to understand that many of the banal beliefs um, that they possess actually have racial implications. Um, As uh, Professor Wilson said, uh, a person doesn't have to be racially prejudiced to do and say things that racists do and say. So um, by implicating a broader swath of American citizens, um, we mean that a broader swath of citizens need to be held accountable mm. for what they believe and the racist or the racial implications that they have in politics. Thanks for that. So, David, so I understand from what Darren's saying is that, in fact, there are far more Americans, not just the white supremacists, not just those who hold racist views, who need to shoulder the burden, who have culpability and responsibility um, for resistance to, for example, policies that are designed to help racial minorities. But I'm still, help us understand why this is so important. What led, why it was so important to write this book? I mean, does it really matter what got people to the same place, whether it was racism or resentment? Because at the end of the day, they're still against the policies and the politicians that want to make life better for Black members of our communities. Yeah. It's an interesting you know, question. I think it, it speaks back to this anchoring in racism and prejudice is that um, there are very few things in this world uh, that only have one cause, right? So uh, racial outcomes uh, can be motivated by a host of, of uh, needs. For example, the need for security, the need for safety, the need to not uh, feel like the world in which you see is fair uh, you don't need that to be disrupted. You need some kind of, of calm. And so the reason why this is important is we, if we want to have a real conversation about uh, potential solutions and the nature of the problem, and we keep dancing around uh, the words like racism and prejudice, which are pernicious and evil, and we know they exist, but Darren's point about implicating others 
says that you may say that you're not a racist. You may be a non-racist, but you still may be uh, enabler, an enabler of uh, these outcomes. And so if we're actually serious about trying to uh, reach some level of racial justice or racial equality, we have to be able to have conversations about what's really important and what's really driving the uh, political outcomes. In politics, we, we typically define it as any decision about who gets what in society. And so resentment is a natural outcome of politics. Whenever someone receives something, they go through an automatic judgment of whether or not it's deserved. And when people perceive that someone is getting something they don't deserve, and they think that something is very important, a cherished outcome, like a, a scholarship to a university or the ability to buy a house or even being the first person in line because you got there early. Whenever that system of fairness is disrupted, it produces resentment. And what we're saying is that that resentment becomes racialized because of the ways in which people think about systems of merit, systems of how capitalism is fair, even these delusions about democracy sometimes can disrupt that. So racial resentment points us in a different direction than racism and prejudice. Karen, let me turn to you and David, please um, pick up after David answers with your own thoughts. You know, as I was reading the book, I kept running whenever you talked about deservingness <laughs> and about whites attitudes about towards what blacks deserve. A lot of those attitudes about what they deserve seem to be based on racist ideas that Blacks are lazy. They don't work hard. They take advantage of the system. And it seemed like we're really beginning to split, split hairs if the assessment of who deserves what is in turn based on bias, prejudice, racist assessments of what Black people deserve. So where's the distinction there for you? So uh, in the book, we, we actually call those uh, legitimizing uh, racial myths that, that people perceive that um, um, African-Americans and other minorities are gaining certain advantages. Uh, they're challenging the status quo and they're challenging it in a certain way that it comes at their expense. So, um, <clears throat> The book is predicated on this idea that uh, whites perceive that the American way of life is changing. Uh, they perceive that they're being cut in line. They perceive that their status um, is being threatened um, and is being threatened by um, undeserving African-Americans and other minorities um, and that this costs them. So it is, you know, it is a little bit more sophisticated than just holding racial stereotypes. Hmm. It is, it is first of all, this belief that the American way of life is changing. My privilege is changing, or at least I perceive that um, my status is changing and that things are actually going in favor of African-Americans and other minorities who are not um, uh, committed to certain values. Mm -hmm. um, they're not doing what they're supposed to do. They're not playing by the rules of the game. Got it. Um, David, anything you, you want to add to that? On that yeah, it, it was interesting. As, as you pointed to that, some of these 
issues about deservingness are motivated by what you might call as racism or prejudice ideas. It may be the actual opposite, that racial attitudes like prejudice are motivated by holding certain values that you should be in a certain place, for example. You haven't paid your dues. And when you're trying to push ahead without paying your dues, it makes me angry and upset. So if you're trying to move into my neighborhood and I see you constantly pushing against the system and I look at who's doing that most often. So let's say African-Americans are the ones who are pushing for change most often in society. That disruption may lead one to actually be racist. Right. So so we're not you know, naturally born as racist mm-hmm. or prejudiced, but it is an evolutionary kind of trait that we have because we belong to groups and we want to be protective of our groups. And in psychological terms, we we like our groups because it's self-enhancing. It makes us feel good. It gives us a sense of certainty. And therefore, we want we are motivated to think we're good people. So if we're good people and we have uh, negative attitudes about African-Americans, we could do two things. We could realize that we're not good people or we could blame African-Americans. And so it's easier to say that it's your fault and you should work harder. That's the deservingness mechanism that's at play. If I have to say, well, you are already working hard, you know, person that has to you know, take public transportation and get paid a low wage and take on three or four jobs, you're already working hard but maybe you could work a little bit harder. So even this idea, this is the, the myth nature of it. So when Darren says legitimizing myths, the myth is that African-Americans are not working hard and playing by the rules. And so even when they do work hard and play by the rules, those values persevere and get applied more broadly. Got it. So let me follow up. You know, Darren, when he was talking, mentioned that, you know, there are whites, particularly those most likely to harbor this racial resentment who feel that the American way of life is changing, feeling that the status quo is changing, who, feeling, who are feeling that their position in society is changing. Are they wrong? So then that's kind of like a trick question. I'm supposed to be a moderator. I got to poke <laughs> you guys a little bit. Um, you know, I think there are actual things that are taking place in society today that can actually give the perception that the status quo for whites is actually changing. For instance, uh, trigger warnings. We have um, this renewed emphasis on diversity and inclusion. We have um, this uh, reaction, this backlash toward uh, political correctness. Um, The election of um, um, Barack Obama for two terms. We also have job outsourcing, we have health. So many whites, I argue, are perceiving that those are the sort of things that are benefiting African-Americans and other minorities. Oh, and I also forgot to include immigration. Yeah. But but it is, now, another argument that we make is that it is, It is not unreasonable for whites to perceive that. These things are actually occurring. But the extent to which African-Americans and other minorities are benefiting from these things um, um, is sort of misperceived. I'll just piggyback on that that point. Yes, uh, it is fair for 
whites and any other dominant uh, group to to realize that society is changing. Uh, that doesn't mean they have to resist it, right? So if democracy is enhanced by racial equality, why not find ways to improve upon uh, the aspects of racial progress that are already in place? What is the actual threat from African-Americans moving into particular neighborhoods? And we can go back to the 19 whatevers or the 18 whatevers around reconstruction. What was the threat of building uh, economically prosperous communities in areas and in whites and neighboring areas saying those things shouldn't be there. They're making us look bad. They're living better than we are. These, these ideas about um, the reason why uh, you know, whites have particular attitudes about blacks is only because of racism or prejudice can't be the case. That's not all there is. It, there, it, is, it does exist. I don't like you just because of who you are. But if, if you actually are pushing against the status quo and making it so I have to be more competitive, that's disruptive to me. That sets me on a different course and I have to respond to it. And instead of partnering with African-Americans in neighboring communities or working with them to improve their business prospects, they shut it down. So, so yes, they have a whites have a choice in a changing society. They can embrace it because we are a, you know, kind of a pluralist country, a nation of immigrants, or they can fight against it and believe that democracy should look like X. And what we tend to do is believe that democracy is something that is primarily Christian, is primarily white, is primarily primarily a place of wealth, and is primarily a place where people get what they deserve and deserve what they get. And if I can rationalize that you don't deserve something and you try and get it, it's easy for me to be antagonistic towards you. Got it. So now that both of you proved to be completely capable of handling trick questions, I think you should probably expect a few more as we go along here. Um, as it happens, we have fantastic questions coming in from the audience. So here's one from the audience. David, I'll toss it to you first. Darren, feel free to pick it up. Um, how is being, in quotes, not racist measured? What is the difference between someone who is not racist versus someone who just claims to be? So... That's another trick question, of course, right? Because what we're doing is looking at people's intentions. And this is the trouble uh, for social scientists that we can't always dig into people's heads because social scientists know that once you start studying people, you know what they do really well, then they change. So we have ways to experimentally manipulate uh, crimes or information, and then pose different kinds of scenarios to people to see if they behave differently under one condition or another. One always includes race and the other one doesn't. When we call someone not racist, it's just someone that scores very low on a host of items about stereotypes about African-Americans and beliefs about why they are uh, unequal in society. We could also take more explicit comments like that says, yes, I, I dislike black people. I don't want to live next door to them. I don't want my children to marry them. So there are a host of ways we could indicate that. So someone could say they're not racist when we take that for granted. Um, but if you're familiar with the anti-racism literature, it's not enough to be non-racist. You actually have to do something about it in order to be uh, kind of antagonistic towards the idea of racism. So, so that's how we look at this is that it gets kind of complicated if you're going to judge everybody on whether or not they say they're racist or not. So why don't we just take them at their word? Why don't we just say, okay, 
let's see if that matters. Because if what really matters is your your belief in merit, uh, and that there's no reason that that race should be a source of merit, um, then does that does that play a role? Does it play a role that, for example, your parents pass money down to you, and you're still offended that people say that somehow you're privileged? Uh, by your current standing when maybe African-Americans and other racial minorities didn't have that opportunity. So systemic uh, racism ideas. So people can believe in racist systems and not be racist in their uh, beliefs uh, or attitudes and ideas. But that doesn't mean that they are, uh, they are free of, of responsibility for the problem. Darren, did you want to add to that in any way? Yeah, I think the way I would uh, answer that question is that, you know, our book is a very um, uh, quantitative book. Yeah. Uh, David and I have been collecting data for over 10 years. We've been asking people in national surveys about their racial attitudes and their racial beliefs. So part of the reason why we're able to... um, Uh, talk about and write about what people think about race is because we've been asking people for over 10 years. We have been asking people direct questions about racial prejudice. We have been asking people uh, directly about racial resentment. We have been engaging our colleagues. We have been uh, writing other things about uh, racial resentment. But the most important thing is that uh, we have spent the past 10 years um, writing questions, um, experimenting with questions, conducting experiments um, into how people respond Hmm. to risks. Got it. And, you know, in so many different ways, and I'm pretty sure that someone will ask, well, um, you know, people really don't tell you the truth about um, their beliefs about race. But, um, but the thing that makes David and I uniquely prepared to write this book is that uh, we're also um, uh, perfected ways of getting beyond political correctness and socially desirable responses. Hmm. So, um, but we've been doing this research all our careers, but in the past 10 years or so, we have honed in on uh, the distinction between racial prejudice and racial resentment. So, David, I'm going to give you another question that came from the audience. And I, and, you know, and I detect here some of the same sentiment I had when I was reading the book about really trying to tease apart the nuances and understand the impact. Um, here's the question. Do you think that racial resentment is a direct result of people feeling that someone is getting something undeserved or more a product of political race baiting, e.g. welfare queens? Does focusing on people's underlying values distract from the cynical messaging that is framing these debates in racial terms? David. Yeah. So if you can, some of this has been classified as racial code language or dog whistle ideas. If you can if you can frame the issue to be about values that actually implicate certain uh, ideas, you've captured someone's imagination. So in our book, we, we talk about uh, Make American Great as, a, as an appeal and how it is 
on the surface benign, but it wasn't make America great. It was make America great again. And so we focus in on the again and what that meant for African-Americans relative to whites. And so I, I tend to believe that there is an underlying value structure that racial appeals tap in, are, are tapped into. So, so when we talk about welfare and social service programs, the racial appeal is that African-Americans and other minorities are lazy. The justice appeal is that it's inequitable or it's unequal that they are receiving benefits and I'm not. The underlying problem is that race is an unfair criteria for reward. Now, if you work hard, that's fair. If you're impeded from working hard and you happen to be African-American, then you just need to get over it. You just need to kind of overcome it somewhat. So what we're saying, what we believe is that um, racial resentment is motivated by a tendency that we all have to believe that the world is a just place. We can't walk around society and see all of the bad things happen without somehow blaming people for the, the negative outcomes that they experience. And so that victim blaming stems directly from a judgment about deservingness. And it allows us to kind of uh, deal with some of these threats that are about our existence and about our beliefs that the world is a fair place. I got what I received because I worked hard. I didn't benefit from anything external, but those people who aren't being successful, it's something about them internally. So the research is ripe. Psychology and political science have studied this stuff for a long time, and we study values and how they operate. And what we've done is just said that those values operate through a racial lens sometimes, but those values themselves aren't racial. David, let me stick with you because you brought up something that I kept thinking about while I was reading the book, and that has to do with political messaging. If I'm, you know, a campaign strategist who wants to see President Trump back in office, I'm reading your book and I'm thinking we're on to a good thing here. That MAGA, the MAGA, the Make America Great Again, and the extent to which it contained dog whistles and spoke to people who have this resentment, this fear, that's a, that's a winning formula. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also would seem to say to progressives, to Democrats, to those on the other side of the political spectrum, you are not doing a good job countering those fears, countering that resentment, making a case for the policies. Woo! What do you think about all that? What what does this pretend for our politics and for messaging? And what does it say about the current state of affairs? And Darren, I want to come to you on this one after that. I'll I'll be short. So we're actually helping out the situation because the research is pretty clear that once a racial appeal or an implicit appeal about race is made public and it's called out, it no longer has that much of an effect. And so what we're doing is trying to get people to, to understand how these very subtle appeals uh, that tap into people's beliefs about how the world should work, right? Uh, if you can tap into those values that people hold dear, and if they already think the world is is changing too fast and they're just they just want things to slow down, you know, we don't want to have to pay extra money for recycling. We don't want to have to have our kids bus to another area to achieve racial equality. We don't want to have to pay a little bit more. Uh, on our loan because a lot of the discounts are going to racial minorities who haven't had a chance in the past. Um, people understand, right, and very automatically understand when something is being uh, threatened. And so the values are what's really being threatened, more so than the people who are doing the threatening sometimes. 
before I go to Darren, and I, I just want to circle back and just push on you a little bit more, but it feels to me like the Democrats or the, the left wing may be pretty tone deaf or just simply ignoring um, these phenomena that you're explaining and studying in terms of how they message to build support for the policies they believe in. Do you agree with that? Uh I don't know that it's intentional. I think we, we believe that we should usually follow rules of decorum and process and not bait people and not uh, uh, try and draw out their, uh, their, their nasty selves. And sometimes uh, that's good for one standard of justice, but it may not lead to the outcome you want. And so that's why the two parties often offer a contrast. It's because people get to pick whether they want to kind of be a party. Let's say if you really value the party of Trump, you believe that we should be strong and people should just deal with a couple of harsh words and, and don't be a snowflake, as they call all of the students at the University of California, Berkeley and the like. These, we're hardworking people that understand the way the world works. And if, and if we don't want to use negative appeals, we don't have to use them. But if we're a Republican and we say, hey, we believe that if we don't keep you guys down. Next thing you know, you'll try and change everything we want to believe and we want to do. That's a choice. So I, I do think that uh, in many instances, liberals, which is different than Democrats, and Democrats tend to think about the world differently. They tend to be more open to ideas. They tend to allow these things to kind of happen, whereas conservatives are threatened by openness and new ideas. So, uh, so I think, yeah, they've kind of passed it, but that's a choice. Yeah. Darren, let me ask you to weigh in here on the whole idea of your your work, its conclusions and its implications for political messaging. OK, so, Dan, that's a very good question. Um, I'm going to say something that uh, the world may take to be shocking. Um, but not all people who voted for Trump are racist. And this is what we're saying in the book. That is exactly what the book is about. We need to be able to understand Trump's appeal. And you're right. The Democrats don't understand that in American society, there is a great deal of resentment. Many whites do feel threatened. They do, in fact, feel like the American way of life is changing. This is why the slogan, Make America Great Again, was so effective. It is so effective. It it went directly to the heart of the problem. And this is why African-Americans and whites disagree on the slogan. They disagree in terms of how this slogan is interpreted. So then that goes directly to the issue that we tackled in the book, mm. that, there, that, that there are people who are racially prejudiced out there, okay? Let's set them aside for a second. And let's assume that they're about maybe 15 to 20% of the population. But there is a broader swath of people out there who gravitated toward Trump who are not racists. They possess certain values. They they possess certain information about race that makes those things appealing. So we need to be able to understand that. We need to be able to unpack that. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I think the Democrats are on their way to understanding it because they won in 2020. <laughs> um, so a, a great deal of the population um, is feeling a certain way. And Trump has been able to tap into that. He's been able to tap into racists, but he's also been able to tap into people who are not racist, but who also possess racial information and who may feel a certain way about their world changing. And it's changing in such a, in such a way in, in which people should work for what they get. And when people are perceived to be benefiting unfairly, um, the same way in which, um, you know, my brother who, um, who um, doesn't have to work for what he gets, I may perceive him to be undeserving. The same thing applies to many white Americans as well, that they perceive these things um, as unfair and unjust, thus resentment. resentment. So we argue that let's not forget those who are racist, but that's not where the action is. Hmm. Dan, we know everything there is to know about racists. We've been studying racists for decades. Hmm. We know who they are. We know what they like. We know what their tastes. We know where they live. <laughs> but we don't know why ordinary American citizens gravitate toward these uh, messages um, and appeals um, that 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 uh, Trump has propagated. Yeah. So you know, David Darren just talked about the fact that you know the world is changing and all the rest. And then I recalled a part of your book that was probably one of the darker portions because it made me feel so pessimistic. And that was your suggestion in the book that all the things the Democrats are trying to accomplish and the legislation they're passing is only likely to further exacerbate resentment and that Biden's very election and his policies are just going to lead to more resentment and bias. And I'm not sure I'm 100 percent correct. That doesn't seem like a virtuous cycle to me. So how do we break it if that the more we do, the larger the pushback is going to be? Yeah, I, I think it, it starts with really being able to have conversation. This is this is not always the way people want to do it, but it really does start with being able to talk differently about race. If I can understand that your problem is not necessarily me, but it's what you think about how I'm trying to get ahead, hmm. then maybe we can have a different conversation. That does unfairly put onus on you know somebody that might be subjugated, but some solutions are very painful. Right there, we, we know that there are some solutions to many problems out there that we're going to take a trade off to not do because they violate our privacy. They may be too intrusive in the way we do things, but uh, that that's one of the challenges. What we have to understand is that um, right now, race is a is an idea. It's a concept. It's a problem that existed in our history, and we're stuck now about how to solve it. And the people who, the, you know, most whites who exist today said, we didn't have anything to do with that problem. Why should we have to pay uh, so that they can get ahead 
and they haven't really done much to earn it. And so we have to give every single person some kind of benefit or some kind of help. In other words, we have to treat race as merit. Yeah, we do. And, and, and let's talk about why. It's not, it's not that they're lazy. It's that there is a way in which this democracy is enhanced by moving racial equality forward. And we have to sometimes experiment with some things. We do it all the time with business. We do it all the time with all kinds of other things. Why does race become so problematic? And, and we argue in the book, and this is the reason why it's cyclical, is because we're unwilling to bend on this idea that race is actually worthy of trying to uplift. It's always been such a thing that's negative that now we can't even look at it in a certain way. And, and the last thing I'll say is that chapter eight in our book talks about African-American racial resentment. Yeah, we're going to go there. We got a question from the audience about that. I'm going to get to okay. it in a second. But before right. I do, you know, Darren, when I listen to David, when I recall portions I read in the book, it also feels to me like a profound indictment of our education system, that we are a completely ahistorical society because if more whites, if all whites truly understood the damage and the trauma of a racist past, of our past with slavery, of current conditions and all the rest, that resentment would be tempered, ameliorated, by exactly what David was talking about. Do you share that, that really this is about a complete failure to educate the citizens of this country about our past and the damage done? Well, Dan, I think that is half of the story. Hmm. Um, I think the other half is that um, we need to be able to educate people about uh, democracy. Hmm. How is a democracy supposed to operate? Um, um, we haven't educated people on justice. Hmm. Um, you know, everyone expects uh, a routine, just society. Um, we need to educate uh, people on these democratic norms, equality. Hmm. Um, so, so when I'm asked about what is the solution to some of the issues that we raise in the book, I often comment on how we need to, just as we need to educate people about race, we need to educate people about what is necessary, what is required in a democracy. And, you know, if we did that, we may not have seen the January 6th insurrection last year. Um, But I want to, Return, if I may, to a uh, 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 to a previous question that you just asked, uh, sure. Professor Wilson, and that is, um, I want to give a recent example. You know, Justice Breyer announced um, uh, the other day that he was retiring from the Supreme Court, and President Biden, on the campaign, uh, suggested that uh, he would consider nominating um, an an African American woman. Right to the Supreme Court. Now, the reason why I raised this is because you asked about what breeds resentment. I'm already seeing texts, messages, uh, notifications that that's reverse racism and that is unfair. Yeah. Um, um, we haven't seen anything about a nominee. <laughs> <laughs> um, we haven't seen anything about, 
We haven't seen anything about the qualifications, but there's this belief among many whites that this society, the Supreme Court needs to maintain its white dominance. And so any challenge or change to this white dominance can breed resentment. And the point is that you don't have to be racist to be resentful. So that's the little thing I wanted to add. Excellent, good, good, excellent point. Yeah, um, I'm going to turn back to audiences coming. Uh, audiences coming. In, I mean, questions coming in from the audience. And David, let me give this one to you first, and it touches on what we were just talking about—the portion of the book that talks about um, black racial resentment. And this question is. Another emerging trend is racism or discrimination between people of color themselves, I think, which is different than what's in what you talk about in the book, but you can unpack that. We are still trying to resolve issues of white fragility. Um, How do we tackle this new issue in relation to racial resentment in the political mind? So if you could take that and also bridge to what your book um, talks about in another regard insofar as um, Blacks are concerned in their own resentments. Yeah, I think... You know, it's, again, we it's almost it's it's almost impossible sometimes for us to talk about race without mentioning racism or prejudice. That that's what Darren and I are trying to kind of flip. That if we can talk about how there are other things that motivate these outcomes, and they're important and they're connected to race, but they're not racism and prejudice. And and we learn we we actually learn to think about uh, racial resentment differently by studying African Americans. And that they exhibited the same underlying features of a theory of resentment that whites would. And it made sense to us because who should be more angry about uh, the deservingness of others getting something but keeping someone else from getting something? In other words, African-Americans can resent whites for using race to maintain their dominance over society. Hmm. African-Americans could could resent whites for not trying hard enough to understand the situations they're experiencing. African-Americans can resent whites for denying the privilege they have. African-Americans can resent whites for denying that racial discrimination is a large problem. Survey after survey shows that African-Americans see the world differently than whites. Hmm. And so often it's dismissed. And even Darren's example, you never see the issue where you rarely see the issue of race come up when a when a white male, for example, is nominated for the Supreme Court. It's all about their qualifications. Right. And 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 maybe some of the bad things they do outside of the the world. But uh, but when African-Americans are nominated or women, it's about something internal to them a trait that they have, something about their character that comes up. That's the subtleness because the character always taps into a violation of one of these principles of justice. They don't need something, they haven't earned it, or it's not fair to me that they're getting it. And so racial resentment has an underlying construct in a a system of, of factors that work across any group. And what Darren and I try and do is say, say, well, the racial is not just whites resenting blacks. Blacks can resent whites. Women can resent men. Men can resent women. Citizens of the U.S. can resent people in Canada. It's about tapping into those values and understanding what activates the uh, deservingness, justice, and the perception of injustice. Great answer. Um, leads to another question from the audience. And I think, you know, it's clear that 
what we're talking about, what you're talking about here is resonating. You've offered a really a profoundly deep and interesting analysis. But what about solutions? And this person asks, what are, what are public policy solutions to racial resentment? Would ethnic study require ethnic studies requirements lead to better educated understanding and shift definitions of fairness, quote unquote. Darren, let me come to, to you with that first, because I think you've exposed a problem, you've got people's attention, and the question is, so now what? So, um, you know, as I stated in my previous answer, I think uh, ethnic studies, uh, African-American studies, the study of history is only one component. I think an important component that is lacking in our current educational system is teaching people about the rules of the game, democracy, justice, deservingness. We need to educate people on what it is uh, to live in a democratic society. We need to teach people about equality. What is equality? Uh, We need to teach people about racial equality. We need to teach people about gender equality. Um, These things, I argue, should be extremely explicit in our educational system. We just can't leave this up to chance anymore. Hmm. And, um, And I think there are recent examples of what happens when we just assume that even American citizens understand what it is and what their responsibilities, what their responsibilities are in a democratic uh, society. We can't leave it to chance anymore. I'll just add, you know, it, it may be familiar that we the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, Right. Those two components, you can't have tranquility without justice. And so I think Darren's absolutely right in that you can teach about ethnic studies. You can teach about all 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 of the different groups in the diversity of America. But if you don't teach people about the core ideas and principles of justice and how democracy, our democracy especially, is centered around these ideas that we are not a perfect union. And we're trying to improve it. And one way that we can improve it is acknowledge the sins of our past and do something about it. And, and, and actually ask the people that, that are lineages, lineages of the suffering to have input. And so uh, racial resentment is what keeps that from happening. And the, the only thing we can offer right now that, that, is a, that is a winning argument is about more learning and education and understanding and more research that touches on the real issues. But To be sure, policies offer entitlements all the time based on certain criteria. The one criteria that's problematic, and Darren and I have showed this in in our research in the past, is race. Race is not entitlement worthy. And until we can understand why it should be, it doesn't have to be forever, and it doesn't have, you don't have to get the world because of it, but you have to recognize that you got sold something, it didn't work, and you want to return it. You're just trying to establish justice. You want your money back. You didn't get what you were promised. And, and this, this is essentially what's behind uh, what's needed in, in our education, uh, learning about uh, democracy, is that we should write 
our wrongs, and we should do it with intention and energy. But then, but then, go ahead, Darren, please. So I'm not minimizing uh, the teaching of race. I'm not minimizing that. Yeah. I'm just saying that another important component is teaching about democracy. Now, let's talk about teaching about race. Everyone thinks that they're a racial expert. People possess information. They, they have experiences. Um, they can be right off the pig farm in Indiana and think that they know how the world works about race. And this is, this is not true. Um, they learn what they know about race from television and it's overly uh, incorrect, it's overly exaggerated. Um, um, you know, I've been, I've been teaching within the university for over 25 years and I can tell you that uh, if, if there is one thing that people think that they know, it's race. But it, race is the most polarizing issue in American society. And when you talk about race, people come out from their respective corners and ready to do battle about something that they don't even really know about. So, so I don't mean to minimize the uh, teaching about race, but, um, but we also can't leave that up to chance either. You know, Darren, one of the most um, amazing, shocking in some ways, and in retrospect, it shouldn't have been, it just is a sign perhaps of my naivete, things that I read in the book is the extent to which racial resentment has an impact on attitudes towards legislation and policies that have nothing to do with race, such as climate change, mainly because President Obama backed policies to address climate change. And they're can you unpack that a little bit for us and explain how that works and why that des is deserving of our attention? The reason why racial resentment affects non-racial policies is because um, although racial resentment um, um, is influenced by racialized myths, uh, racialized information, um, please remember that racial resentment is based on justice and deservingness and mm. how and how whites are reacting to challenges to their privilege and the status quo and that is the reason why racial resentment is related to things like climate change because if you look at attitudes toward climate change one of the most important predictors of climate change has to do with um, um, the threat of government intervention, having to do something. And the people who are most um, um, uh, concerned in a negative way about climate change are white males. White males in American society are more likely to object to uh, policies to ameliorate climate change. And the reason for that is that because if you acknowledge that the you know climate change is occurring, you have to do something about it, and that makes people uncomfortable. That government intervention makes people uncomfortable, 
it begins to challenge uh, how people feel about politics. It begins to challenge how people feel about government. It begins to change how people feel about um, what people may call government overreach. Oh, are you going to tell me, is the government going to tell me the type of car I can drive? Yeah. Is the government going to tell me about how I should reduce my carbon footprint? So that is a similar threat. That is a similar threat to what people think they should be allowed to do and their privilege. So that is the way in which climate change um, uh, becomes related to racial resentment is because there is this common threat to privilege and the status quo. So gentlemen, we've actually burned through our time unbelievably. I only have about another 30 questions. The book just has, has had my mind churning all week, but I, I, but we need to wrap up and I'd like some closing thoughts. Darren, uh, let me come right back to you. I mean, I find a lot of cause for sort of grave concern and pessimism. What's your own take about this? I mean, um, as a black intellectual, as a black citizen of this country, as somebody who's had your own lived experience studying this, how are you left feeling? Um, what, what's your takeaway in terms of your own personal actions and your sense of what we need to be doing as a country? Um, uh, okay, so you're gonna end this on a very tough question. Um, look, I think the important conversation we need to have it's not about racists, okay? Hmm. We need to understand how ordinary American citizens approach race, approach values that place them in the same bucket as racists. They're not racists, but they support the same thing that racists support. We're talking about a larger swath of the American public who will support things, who will do and say things that places them in the same bucket as racists, but they may not be racists, but, but those values have the same implications. I think we need to understand that. So I think our book, um, uh, challenges this debate. And, 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 and David and I would like to uh, uh, shape the debate in such a way in, in that we acknowledge racists, okay, they're going to do their thing. That's fine. But what is most important, what is most important to figuring out why things don't change over time is that we have to look at ordinary American citizens who are supporting certain values like just world beliefs and deservingness that make them appear racist. David, same question for you. You finished writing this book and as you're thinking about all the themes, how are you left feeling both as a, as a person and as an intellectual and as a, a political scholar? about what this all pretends and what this all means? Yeah, so it, it looks, Darren's a good question. I, I think about when we were writing this book, this was not an easy book for us 
to write. Yeah. We, we, we just, we're, we're not two radical guys. We, we're pretty, you know, middle of the road kind of folks, but we spent a summer, part of a summer in Warsaw, Poland. Hmm. Um, uh, we had it when I was at the University of Delaware, we, we ran a program uh, teaching people statistics that would partner in psychology and we would tour the country and we spent some time at Auschwitz. And we spent time in, in the heart of Warsaw, that was the former uh, Jewish ghetto. And the conversations that were going taking place within the country were about their history and acknowledging their history and what they want to do about it. And Darren and I were thinking about, well, this is really odd. It's, it's similar to what people mm. are talking about in the United States. How should we understand that? Mm. And, and studying race is, is somewhat it's, it's not a comfortable area. Like if I study, you know, partisanship that, you know, I study in groups, but race, we think about it as an identity and we tend to not think about it as a broader construct that has a whole set of ideas connected to it that may or may not be about hate. And we think that racism and prejudice have to have hate in it. If we start calling everything racism and prejudice, that anything that's disagreeable to African-Americans or, dis or negative on race, then we may not get very far in terms of research or study of, uh, of, the, of the solutions that may help out. And so Darren was absolutely right. We've, we've studied race for decades and um, we've studied racism for just about as long, but there are other things that, that matter. And um, we're, we're hoping that this starts a conversation and that people can, um, can, can begin to have uh, new ideas about research and pushing the discipline forward. Wow. Um, again, so many questions, so many issues raised. Uh, Professor Darren Davis from Notre Dame, Dean David Wilson from the Golden School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for the incredible work um, behind your new book, Racial Resentment in the Political Mind. Um, something that I think is required reading for all of us who care about the country's future um, and about justice. And thanks to all of you for your time, taking time this evening, this afternoon to tune in and to share your questions and your attention. Until the next time. Thank you.